NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirkanish right here in the middle. This is the Smirkanish podcast for independent minds. Gerald Posner is the noted author. I like the sound of that. I decided I would introduce him as such. He's the noted author, Gerald Posner. He's authored 13 acclaimed books. They include Case Closed, Why America Slept, God's Bankers, and most notably for our purposes today, Pharma. Hey, Gerald, welcome back. I have to tell you a quick, funny story uh, about you and Case Closed, and then we'll talk about the Sacklers and and Purdue. A friend of mine has just published a book, he and his wife, Buzz and Janet Teacher. They're both good friends. The book is called Among Friends, and it is a history. It is it is the most beautifully produced book I have ever seen. Uh, It's the history of 20th century book selling. And Buzz himself was the co-founder of an independent publishing house called Running Press. And in the book, they they give space to editors and individuals who were involved in the development of the publishing industry throughout the course of the 20th century to tell the story of their publishing house, large and small. And one of the write ups that caught my eye was from the publisher of your book case closed and about the ad campaign that was run in support of your book, including like running pictures of some of the individuals who had come out and said that there was a conspiracy. Obviously, you know what I'm speaking of. Uh, and I was, I, I never, I never knew that. I must have missed it when it all unfolded in real time. How was case closed marketed? That's my question. Boy, you know, Michael, uh, because you've published books and you understand this, that publishers you know, sometimes don't do that much publicity once a book is launched. In Random House's case, they decided to do a pre-launch campaign. And in the New York Times, for about two months, they ran an ad every week that said, November 22nd, 1963, JFK was assassinated. August 22nd, that's when they were releasing the book, 1993, Random House names the guilty. And then on the publication date, they ran a picture of six people, Mark Lane, the author, um, you know, uh, Oliver Stone, uh, the, uh, and other conspiracy people saying guilty of having misled the American public. There's one man, one gun, the lone assassin, case closed. As a result of that ad campaign, the three of those people who were named, including Mark Lane, that sued Random House and said, you've defamed us. Uh, they lost those suits. They were thrown out of court. Random House got summary judgment, but they probably spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars defending the claim. So I don't know how much they loved that aggressive ad campaign afterwards. It's uh, <laughs> very rare to see that in publishing. 
Well, there was. Listen, I'm going to make sure that you see this book and the write up about you because there was discussion in it about how the publisher fell in love with the book and and committed what was at that time uh, like an unprecedented amount of money to uh, support your endeavor and and your your. Uh, portrayed as being, you know, sort of open-mouthed in the room when you're given the news that they're prepared to spend six figures to promote your book. That's And, and that's absolutely true because I never had a best-selling book before then, although I had done, uh, you know, at, at that stage uh, four books. And there was a stage in which Harry Evans was married to Tina Brown, Tina Brown of the New Yorker and Vanity Fair fame, Harry Evans, was the British uh, editor and publisher of Random House at the time. He had led the Times of London, was a great investigative reporter. He did spend money, and I remember one day when they allowed me to sit in the room. Normally, they never put the author in the room with the publicity team because they're afraid the author's going to say, do more and more. And right. I just sort of sat there and marveled at it. He, he looked at a one-page layout for an ad in the New York Times book review, and he said, I think that would look better as a two-page, as, a, as, <laughs> as we go across the fold. And they and they did it. And you imagine if you suggested that today, they would throw you out of the publishing house. Yeah. Oh, man. So. All right. Well, that's tomorrow's conversation when, when Buzz is here, he and Janet Teacher having authored Among Friends. Make a note of it, Gerald, because you I will love. Order. I will order oh, my God. You will love this book. Okay. Let's talk about the Sacklers. I have questions beneath your pay grade because I don't want to take for granted that people are paying attention to this. Who are they and what is Purdue? Okay, so the Sacklers are the owners of Purdue Pharma, and that was a drug company that was a one-hit wonder. It had one-hit drug, which was an opioid painkiller called OxyContin, which it put on sale in 1996, approved by the FDA. And over the years it was on sale, it sold $35 billion in sales, an amazing amount. It helped kick off the opioid crisis that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. It was the most popular of the drugs. And the Sackler family became billionaires just from that drug. They took about $11 billion after taxes in, in net profits just from the sale of OxyContin. And then the company went bankrupt four years ago under the weight of thousands of lawsuits pending against it. When they filed for bankruptcy, the Sacklers appeared at the bankruptcy court and said, oh, by the way, we've got a lot of money. We aren't bankrupt. But why don't you come up with a bankruptcy reorganization plan that covers us, meaning give us freedom from all litigation in the future, the same as we would get if we were bankrupt, and we'll contribute some money to the overall settlement. And they eventually contributed $6 billion. That has been appealed. And what's before the Supreme Court yesterday was the question of whether people like the Sacklers, who are not parties to a bankruptcy, can get the protection of the bankruptcy court, um, so-called third-party releases, or whether that's unconstitutional. Which family members were most responsible for putting OxyContin on the market, and are they still alive? Uh, they are. Uh, two of the original members of the uh, the firm that were on the board of directors have passed away. Um, the rest of them, there are, are eight in total, uh, were all directors, and they are still alive. What's interesting, Michael, is this was a hands-on group of directors. They weren't just directors who received a fee to show up at a meeting occasionally. They made the decisions in running the company. Purdue is unique as a drug company because most drug companies are publicly held. They're big stock companies, whether we're dealing with Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or whatever, and the board of directors is one of the factors. But here, closely held 
private family-run business. And we know from some of the early lawsuits that were filed that were stopped that the Sacklers were involved in everything from the marketing decisions to how they were pushing the drug out. Okay, you anticipated my next question, which was, what did they know and when did they know it? You're here to say that they had knowledge of of what? The addictive nature of OxyContin? This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Smirconish program. Listen weekdays at 9 a.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and anytime on the Sirius XM app. Okay, you anticipated my next question, which was, what did they know and when did they know it? You're here to say that they had knowledge of, of what? The addictive nature of OxyContin? Well, now you ask the key question, which is one of the things that the parties want who want the bankruptcy to be overturned is they are saying we never had our day in court. We never were able to go through full discovery on the Sacklers to determine exactly what role they played, how material it was in the marketing and, and, and what happened in terms of oxycontin. The, those, all the discovery was stopped because of the bankruptcy. When the judge who was running the bankruptcy proceeding stopped the litigation against the Sacklers. They like to say, the attorneys for the Sacklers, that there was more discovery done under the bankruptcy than in any other legal proceeding. But the discovery done in the bankruptcy was to see whether they had fraudulently conveyed money abroad. It was looking to see if they had taken money that they had in U.S. accounts and sent it abroad. That's what that was about. No one did discovery in the bankruptcy to determine what role the Sacklers played in full in this opioid crisis. I assume that you watched Painkiller on television, Matthew Broderick playing Richard Sackler? I did. What did you think of it? I thought that was the Hollywood version of the opioid crisis in Purdue Sackler. Um, 
the I think that uh, the, the better series was Dope Sick um, that was done by Danny Strong. Uh, it was also a scripted series, but was closer to what happened. And maybe I'm biased on that because I was a consultant on Dope Sick. But I think that um, Painkiller received a large audience. The thing is, Hollywood likes a heroic figure. So there is a heroic figure in Painkiller who's sort of pursuing the actors and making them pay. And, you know, he's always on top of them. That didn't exist in real life. That's one of the reasons this crisis went on for 25 years, is that nobody came to the forefront and played the role that is so well played in Painkiller. So yesterday there was an argument in the Supreme Court of the United States as to whether this settlement that came out of bankruptcy court should be upheld. By all accounts, what a shame we don't have cameras that we could be watching for ourselves, but by the accounts of those who were there, uh, it was a, a mixed reaction. I'm looking at the NBC coverage. I'll just read the lead. Members of the Supreme Court seemed conflicted Monday over whether to allow the bankruptcy reorganization of opioid maker Purdue Pharma, which includes a provision that protects the Sackler family from liability from future lawsuits. Reading the tea leaves, Gerald Posner, author of the book Pharma, what do you make of what went on in yesterday's argument? Yeah, it was fascinating to listen to it. I think, you know, it's hard to read the tea leaves, as you so well know, of Supreme Court justices from the hearings. But it looked to be, to me, a four to four split with Roberts being maybe the decider. Comey Barrett, Gorsuch, Ketanji Brown and Sotomayor had questioning that made it seem as though they were skeptical of the, the bankruptcy plan and what it did. Comey Barrett even said at one point, you know, the, the attorneys representing the, the bankruptcy plan said it was approved by the overwhelming number of victims, 97%, but only a small number voted for it. And Comey Barrett said, what about the invisible creditors? What about those who didn't vote, who thought that it was a done deal, who thought it was already a wrapped up thing that they couldn't have any influence? So those four seemed ready to invalidate. The ones ready to uphold seemed to be Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, very aggressively so. Alito was remarkably quiet. And Kagan. Roberts was tough to judge. And so I think we're looking at a 5-4 decision come June. The incentive for the court not to overturn this is that if they overturn it, Michael, it's not it's going to be a mess because it's going to revert to thousands of individual lawsuits pending against the Sacklers and Purdue. And, you know, litigation, mass litigation like this isn't always the best way to get things done. But at the same time, as you know, I do believe that the Sacklers gained the bankruptcy system and got the benefit of it. I just am not sure whether throwing the bankruptcy out is going to be to the benefit of everyone. Gerald, listening to your prognostication, if I took notes and if I heard you correctly, it seems like you don't think this breaks entirely along the usual ideological lines. You've got Elena Kagan and Coney Barrett switching jerseys, so to speak. Yeah, no, it's a remarkable. That, that's the part that was really so amazing uh, uh, to me yesterday is that, for instance, you know, you saw Judge Kagan in there saying that she kept saying that the support for the plan was overwhelming. That's her word. She even had, it's the first time I remember a Supreme Court justice using the word highfalutin. Uh, she said, you know, the highfalutin principles of bankruptcy law, as though she was dismissing that. The huge majority of creditors, she said, were on the side of doing this deal. Her comments made her look as though she was certainly somebody who would be upholding it. And then you look at the other side, Ketanji Brown. One commentator said she was like a tiger, and she really was. She went after 
the the lawyers who were representing the bankruptcy on this, and she said, you know, the only reason these releases were necessary is because the Sacklers wouldn't give the money back. They had to do it to do the deal. And the only reason the company is in bankruptcy is because essentially they ended up ransacking it. Uh, and that's not her word, the ransacking, but that was the equivalent of it. And so you do see the people on the often the same side of the issues split here, um, even in terms of Gorsuch and uh, Amy Barrett, I think, invalidating it where you have Thomas and Alito and Kavanaugh on the other side. So in my newsletter today, I included your essay under the headline, Don't Let the Sacklers Get Away With It. What is it that you think ought to happen? Well, I think that this, if I was sitting on the court, I would say that third-party releases are, in fact, unconstitutional. I don't think that that was ever intended in the in the bankruptcy law. The catch-all provisions have been made much too broad. And if Congress, uh, we come back to the same old thing that happened so many times, Michael, wants to have third-party releases included for parties like the Sacklers in the future, they can allow for that, but it's up to Congress to step in to allow those. This isn't something that's developed over 30 years in bankruptcy courts. Some courts have been very aggressive with it. This is the biggest and most aggressive application ever, and I think it does allow the Sacklers, even though they're giving $6 billion, to walk away with billions of dollars in OxyContin profits. And the problem here is that no state's attorney general or the Department of Justice has opened a criminal investigation into the Sacklers. There's nobody looking at them. They could be charged for crimes. It's separate from the bankruptcy proceeding, but it's not happening. And so... There's just a distaste. I've written about this family, the role that I think they played in the bankruptcy, and I have a personal distaste for them to being able to walk away with still any of the billions that they they made from this very, very lethal and destructive drug. What what of the argument, though, uh, Pratik Shah, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a lawyer for some of the victims and warned the court yesterday that there will be no viable path to any victim recovery if the deal is... Kaboshed. I mean, you, you've you've got people who say there's no love lost between victim family members and the Sacklers, but they want to get paid because otherwise, if they don't get paid through this arrangement, they fear they won't get paid at all. That's right. No, no, no. I understand that. And there is look yesterday in front of the Supreme Court, including families that I know um, were protesting uh, for this judgment to be overturned, the bankruptcy be overturned. But there are other families who are adamantly for it, who say, we're not going to get a penny. We've waited all this time. And the victims get very little here. What I mean is they're getting pennies on the dollar. The, the, most of the money of this eight to nine, ten billion dollar bankruptcy is going toward recovery programs and harm reduction that the states want. And that's why all of the state's attorney generals are re- essentially for it. Nobody's being aggressive and saying we don't want it because they're all getting money from it that they'll be able to use for their drug programs. The thing is... Shaw had a point, he tried to argue both sides, which isn't surprising, which is on the one side saying all the pending claims that want to be filed, they're worthless. There's nothing that really is covered that has any merit. But then on the other point would say, however, if one gets to the courthouse and is successful, it could wipe out all the claims of everyone else trying to use the scare tactic. Katanji Brown went after that and didn't like it at all. But, you know, that's the method here is you are then returning this to the, the courthouse and to multi-district litigation, it's not going to be resolved for years. So there are families who say enough. We've gone through all this. We've suffered enough. Whatever we get is better than nothing. Let's just wrap it up. 
a, a final question or two, and thanks for being so gracious with your time. So earlier you made reference to incomplete or inadequate discovery corresponding to your piece, the one that I've linked to in my social media. I'm, I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten members of the family, two of whom are deceased. Who has who has submitted who has been subjected to a deposition? Who's been put under oath from the family in connection with all of this litigation, if you know? Yes, the, the key person, Richard Sackler, who is the son of one of the original founders of Purdue Pharma, himself a doctor, uh, the, the leading voice on the board of directors um, for this, and then his sister at another point. And the, and the depositions are remarkably unsatisfying, as you might imagine. Um, they aren't very forthcoming. There's a lot of I'm not sure, I don't recall. And uh, they were done a, a few years ago before. I think there was as much information that could have made the depositions much livelier. So the depositions are there. They are sort of a classic case study in obfuscation and um, omission and dodging the, the extent of the record. They were well prepared by their attorneys. And in the end, the product comes on the market in 1996, generates $35 billion in sales. It's a privately owned firm. The family took $11 billion out after tax, I think you said. It went on for 25 years, and now this is a $6 billion settlement that would resolve any claims that could be brought against the family members. That's right. And, and, there, and by the way, the family offered only $2 billion originally. Then they went to $3 billion to try to do this, and still wasn't happening. And finally, they went to $6 billion, a big sum of money. There was some discussion before the court yesterday that if the court invalidated this bankruptcy, that what it might do is send it back to bankruptcy court for a reorganized uh, diversion that didn't give the sectors full immunity, but from which they might even offer some more money. So it, it, it's not necessarily sure that if this is invalidated, it doesn't mean there can't be a bankruptcy proceeding. It just means there can't be one with the full release of all immunity for their civil claims. The question is, how do you end up parsing that? The judge who ran this bankruptcy is retired and went to work, by the way, for for one of the big law firms, Scadden Arps, that was of counsel to Purdue for all these years, you know, leaving a bitter taste in the mouth of many of the uh, of the victims in the case. But uh, they would need a new judge. It's not going to be done by the old judge. Final question. What's the state of opioid addiction today? Uh, it has moved from prescription drugs because now uh, we've moved. The pendulum has swung from easy, uh, you know, prescriptions were given out all the time for opioids, for back pain and everything else. Now that's stopped. Doctors are very tough on giving it out. And as a result, a lot of the opioid addictions instead fed by street drugs, fentanyl comes to dominate in the 111,000 deaths last year from opioids. Uh, 70% were from fentanyl, and uh, that's illegal fentanyl, not fentanyl given by an anesthesiologist for a surgery. That's where the market has moved, unfortunately, heroin and fentanyl. That was a great tutorial. Gerald, thank you so much. I really appreciate it every time you're here. No, Michael, thank you uh, so much, and I'm uh, looking forward to order uh, that book among friends right now. Oh, yeah, you're going to love it. By, by, by the way, it'll, it'll set you back a little, but it's beautiful and it's worth it. I've never seen a more beautifully produced book. Thank you, Gerald. Fantastic. Thank you, Michael. Gerald Posner is the author, among other things, of the book Pharma. Yeah. So my last question, what's the state of opioid addiction today compared to all of this? It's no longer prescription meds. It's no longer OxyContin that you're getting a script for and getting addicted to. Now it's 
it's all you know street, street drugs, drugs by by those who are already addicted. Uh, one hundred and eleven thousand deaths last year. Kensington, right here yeah. in our backyard. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, what what in the world do you do? And 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 so much of it is is from a homeless right. driving the homeless situation that uh, exists all over the country. Mm. Well, I thought that was really informative, and I feel you know like Paul Harvey. Now you know the rest of the story relative to what went on in the Supreme Court yesterday. I hope you'll be game for a discussion about opioids generally. That's the talk that I want to have from that NBC coverage during the oral argument. Justices expressed skepticism that a bankruptcy court had legal authority to release the Sacklers from potential legal claims. Some justices also seemed reluctant to blow up the multi-billion dollar deal that would provide immediate relief to opioid victims. I almost made it the poll question today. Is, is it worth it to take the deal? And know that $6 billion is going to fund that relief, benefit those families. But the downside is that the Sacklers would be free of any civil liability. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius X. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Sam. The Michael Smirconish Program. Listen weekdays at 9 a.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and anytime on the Sirius XM app. It's much more than opioids. Listen to this. The United States is in a new and perilous period in its battle against illicit drugs. The scourge is not only opioids such as fentanyl, but a rapidly growing practice that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention labels polysubstance use. Over the last three years, studies of people addicted to opioids, that's a population, by the way, estimated to be in the millions, 
have consistently shown that between 70 and 80 percent also take other illicit substances, a shift that is stymieing treatment efforts and confounding state, local and federal policies. Dr. Kara Poland, an associate professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, says this is an addiction crisis. It's no longer an opioid crisis. The non-opioid drugs include those relatively new to the street, an animal tranquilizer, xylaline, probably mispronouncing that, which can char human flesh, anti-anxiety medications like Valium and Clonopin, and older recreational stimulants like cocaine and meth. Dealers sell these drugs plus counterfeit Percocet and Xanax pills often mixed with fentanyl. The incursion of meth has been particularly problematic. Not only is there no approved medical treatment for meth addiction, but meth can also undercut the effectiveness of opioid addiction therapies. Aaron is a nurse in Los Angeles. Aaron, what do you see on this general subject of opioids and opioid addiction? So it's really bad down here. Uh, I work in the ER. Um, I'm a a travel nurse, but I've mostly been traveling through the Los Angeles area. And we're actually seeing that it's really difficult to treat people much to what you were just saying, because they'll come in and they'll say, oh, no, I just did a line of coke. But it'll the the process that they would normally go through for detoxing off of it is so complicated because it's not usually just cocaine it's not usually just heroin or or even marijuana we're finding a lot of these things we had a a a a kid who was 16 years old and smoked some marijuana with friends he didn't know it was laced with fentanyl and we are struggling to keep up with these combinations and with people who aren't able to tolerate even a little bit of discomfort and they think that an opioid is the best way to solve this when really there are other treatments that we're finding that don't give the high but that will also not produce an immediate relief and and we're in a society now where the weight is just not people aren't willing to wait to see how a drug will help i i have a naive question where where did the current level of addiction come from like i understand the era the 25 year time period of when you could go to a physician and get a prescription for for oxycontin but we're beyond Mm -hmm. that now right is this is this a residual of that era or did something else happen that spawned a whole new generation of people who are addicted to opioids so this is just going to be me going based yeah, yeah. off of what I've seen. Sure. A yeah. lot of the people that we're seeing are of the older generation. We're getting octogenarians coming in for for heroin and meth use, and that hasn't been something that I had seen before. Um, and it's also you're seeing a lot of the younger folks who really – don't know what they're doing or what they're dealing with coming in also because they're experimenting. But a lot of it, like I said, is also this perception of we can't deal with even a little bit of discomfort in our life, whether it's mental or physical. And then the problem with these opioids is you'll take them and your body will get used to it. So it takes more and more and more. And then eventually that drug itself will not help that pain or that, that, uh, psychiatric problem so you have to switch to something else or a combination drug in order to achieve that that high or that relief of symptoms and so it's it's a it's a very difficult 
thing. And the treatment a lot of times is another opioid Right. I'm hearing, I'm hearing from you. By the way, Aaron, thank you so much. I, I got great value out of that, and I appreciate your your expertise from working as an ER nurse. It sounds to me like people are getting addicted in part to opioids because they're taking something that they don't even recognize, recognize has an opioid component to it. Like the guy that Aaron says, uh, says well, I just did a line of cocaine. I, I wasn't doing opioids. Hey, Dawn, I'm sorry to hear about your nephew. Tell me about him and what happened. Um, thanks for taking my call. So my nephew was in a car accident in high school, and he was prescribed um, opioids. And um, my nephew was brilliant. And to give you an idea of how brilliant he was, when he took the MCATs, they thought he was cheating because he got a perfect score. I mean, wow. he was out Jeez. there. So he went in and out of rehab. The problem was he knew more about the brain than his facilitators in rehab. I mean, he was just that crazy brilliant. He got um, in his Ph.D. program. He had a full ride and stipend to study Alzheimer's. He probably would have found the cure to Alzheimer's. But ultimately, um, he was doing great, ended up um, uh, relapsing, um, died. Three other people died that night. Um, they found his cell phone with his text messages to his dealer and the Uber ride to his dealer. So um, they were able to arrest um, his dealer. And um, upon sentencing, the uh, judge asked my sister and brother-in-law um, to weigh in. And the option was a much uh, longer sentence, um, but a much lesser charge or sentence and a manslaughter charge they opted for the shorter sentence which i think was maybe three to five years and uh, um he was uh convicted of manslaughter he was the first person in my state to um get a conviction of manslaughter for um drug dealing wow and the world lost a incredible brilliant young man to this so how long how long ago did it happen and how old was he he was 23, and um, I think we're coming up about six years ago now, maybe. So oh, that's so damn sad. It, and this is, yeah, and it's, you know, I feel a little hesitant to share this because this is my sister's story, yeah. but it affected my family and, and my children, um, the, and we'll never recover the loss. I'm so sorry about that, but I think you've I think you've done your nephew a service because people need to know how easily. You can fall into this, even a bright mind like your nephew. Uh, and thank at you. His funeral, they okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Tell me, tell me what happened. Well, it's it's just you know he wasn't, and I hate to to. I don't mean to. I don't know how this will come across. He wasn't like this street junkie that you know this homeless person. His friends were all nerds. These were brilliant. You know, they're brilliant minds. This can happen to anybody across all you know, demographics, it, it, it's it's a, obviously a national problem. It knows no boundaries. It knows no yeah. boundaries. Okay. Thank you, Dawn. So sorry to hear about that. Wow. First manslaughter conviction for an opioid-related death in the state of 
uh, Ohio. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.